What's up, y'all? This is Dr. Craig Waleed, your host here on the Prison to Promise podcast, where I explore strategies formerly incarcerated people use to avoid returning to prison. On this episode, I'm joined by a special guest, Dr. Keisha Middlemass. Dr. Middlemass is an associate professor at Howard University. Her work centers around prisoner reentry, policy analysis, and food insecurity. I invite you to join me and Dr. Middlemass as we talk about how state and federal policies and laws have been used historically to take away the human rights and exclude citizenship of predominantly black men from fully engaging in civil activities. Now let's go. And so I'm really excited to have you here with us today, uh, Dr. Keisha Middle Mass. You know, um, I was really impressed um, meeting you, your presentation at the Leadership Conference, and um, I've been thumbing through your book. Um, and so really digging the stuff that you're working on. Um, let's just jump right in. And, let's do um, it. I have a PhD in public policy, American politics from the University of Georgia. Okay, so maybe just let's start by telling, I guess, the listeners just a little bit about yourself, who you are and your background. Sure. Thank you for the invitation to be here with you, talk about um, my work. So I always had an interest in the intersection between the law, public policies, and how those impact the Black community in particular. Mm. And so my real focus, even starting as undergrad, was looking at voting rights and redistricting and all those Supreme Court cases, um, particularly around Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act and preclearance and the role of the Department of Justice. And so I worked on those topics and related topics all the way through my graduate degree. Um, in fact, my dissertation is on the implementation of the Voting Rights Act. And post-dissertation, I really wanted to get into the nuances of voting rights in different jurisdictions in the United States, particularly, again, around Black voting rights, but also expanding um, into language minorities and how these policies incorporated previously marginalized communities into the electorate. And then for us that are a little bit older, the 2000 presidential election took place <laughs> and right. Florida hanging chads, um, the role the governor, Jeb Bush, mm -hmm. played in moving the counting of the ballots of Bush v. Gore. Sabotaging and the vote. All that and bringing up the point of his administration being able to clear the voting rolls and focusing on black men and using a felony conviction to disenfranchise people. Um, but like all, not all, but a lot of policies, it was a wide reaching effort by the by the governor's administration, by Jeb Bush's governor's administration. And so people, black men, 
in particular, other minorities, but, mm -hmm. but particularly black men, were captured in this implementation and could not vote for Al Gore. Right. Right. And so that then sparked my interest, like, oh, my goodness, felon disenfranchisement laws. That's where my research is going next. I don't need to look any further. Mm. Um, and then after the, you know, Bush v. Gore Supreme Court decision, things sort of settled down. But that that idea of being disenfranchised because of a past mm -hmm conviction through the criminal justice system that has yeah. nothing to do with the electorate. We know these institutions are separate. Right. I had an opportunity to, to um, be a fellow at the Vera Institute of Justice in New York City. And as a race fellow at the Vera Institute, I dug into felon disenfranchisement laws, but also started talking to other people. And that's where the whole idea of collateral consequences came into focus. Mm -hmm. and the collateral consequences of felony conviction beyond voting right and that has been my research interest ever since heavy heavy thank you for sharing that and one of the things that stood out for me um reading about your background and you mentioned it again is your interest in felon disenfranchisement laws you know and it i'm not going to say it seems but i think we already know that this is a further extension of chattel slavery, um, Jim Crowism, yes. white supremacy, all in an effort to disenfranchise or to disempower uh, black men in black communities. Can you talk a little yes. bit how your work intersects with that? Yes, of course. And I think it's also really important to think and you 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 started or you, you you teed it up for me. It's when we study policies and when we study the impact of policies on black people, we must be interdisciplinary. Hmm. We must go back in time. So felon disenfranchisement laws, of course, are not new. They date back to post-slavery reconstruction, post-reconstruction when Southern states started rewriting their state constitutions to be invited or accepted back into the union. So we're talking like 1890s, 19 teens, the mm -hmm. early 1900s, where mm -hmm. white elected officials at the state level were creating constitutions and laws around voting to make sure they disenfranchise majority, majority black men, because remember, women, but also black women don't have the right to vote yet in the early 1900s. And those felon disenfranchisement laws just sort of went along like they they weren't overturned they weren't challenged they mm -hmm. just stayed on the books mm -hmm. many of them are still on the books today they are still on the books today indeed and 1974 supreme court case affirmed the right to use a felony conviction to deny individuals the right to vote mm -hmm. so the supreme court said yeah this is good we that's fine not not unconstitutional at all. Who cares about the 14th Amendment? Who cares about the 13th Amendment? Who cares about the 15th and 19th Amendments? Who cares, period? Who cares? When it comes to those folks. When it comes to those folks that have broken the social contract, that have been found by the criminal justice system to have violated a law and are now deemed a felon, mm -hmm. they no longer can be part of the electorate. Mm. Just one last note on this point. Now, fast forward, some states today, Maine and Vermont, actually don't restrict individuals that are incarcerated, individuals with felony conviction from voting. But I always like to point out 
they're white states. Yeah. They're majority, like they've got five black people living in Vermont and, and Maine. I'm, I'm, I'm exaggerating, but you get the point. There's a very, very small population. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and they've also got a very small prison population. Hmm. So when you look, and I haven't looked at the numbers recently, but I remember looking at how many people were incarcerated in Maine. And I was like, I've run high school elections with more people yeah then <laughs> so it's so me i'm sort of like yeah that doesn't seem like a lot of people so we really have to um add race when we look at felon disenfranchisement laws who is being incarcerated yeah. well let's backtrack who's being policed who right. is being charged who is being incarcerated who is then coming out to re-enter society yeah. and being excluded from the electorate excluded from the polity so it would be safe then to say that these laws are not coincidental, but it seems more that these things have been implemented by design. Yes, mm -hmm. by design. Wow, yeah, it's heavy. And so how do you think folks who are on the receiving end of these felony disenfranchisement laws, once they are returning back to communities, how can they perhaps regain some of their um, civil rights, I guess. Yep. No, civil rights is exactly it. Um, so I think the the first thing individuals have to do is figure out their state laws. Mm. And why I say figure out is because the state laws are not clear. Mm -hmm. They are hard to interpret. We're seeing right now Governor Governor DeSantis, again, back in Florida, because now Florida is like the Mississippi of voting rights. Yes, indeed. Um, using his power to arrest people who have a felony conviction, who the state has said, these 20 people are eligible to vote. Mm -hmm. The state has sent them documentation saying you are eligible to vote. And then they go vote. And then DeSantis's team, people, have arrested them saying you've now violated the laws because you are you have a felony conviction you have violated the social contract you can't vote and despite the effort of amendment four being passed and then the governor's office overturning amendment four like florida is a mess so when i say where do you live what is the jurisdiction you live in learn what those laws are and again it's hard because a lot of people at the local level, when they're helping people register to vote, they're helping people to actually cast a ballot. Those individuals may not know. Mm -hmm. um, I'm for and and the, the 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 black woman in Texas who voted. Well, she was on parole. Yeah, and, the, and the, yes, the she local recently got out of prison. Yes. And the local official said you can vote and the state said, oh, no, 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 no. You have to do five years because you violated the law. Mm -hmm. And so one thing is knowing the law, but also mm -hmm. how it is implemented unevenly across the population. Yeah. And I'm thinking that might be an uphill battle, too. 
you know, for many of the folks who are coming out of prison. Um, as we know, statistics research shows us that um, a large swath of people who are incarcerated are undereducated, miseducated, or don't have any formal education. But even if they do have formal education, oftentimes some of the struggles that it takes just to get, um, I guess, living situations balanced, make that balance for themselves, makes it almost impossible for them to um, come up to speed in law and other things, you know. Right. Can you talk yes. a little bit about some of those challenges um, that, that you've witnessed when working with some of the people you've worked with? Yes, indeed. And um and 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 voting, of course, is, you know, your citizenship rights. Mm -hmm. When you are convicted of a crime, when you're found guilty of a crime, you don't lose your citizenship. But these laws take away your rights of citizenship. So, mm -hmm. yes, we've talked about voting, mm -hmm. but elected officials have gone outside of the criminal justice system into other policy areas, housing, education, employment. Oh, my goodness, we could we'll talk about employment, um, family reunification, mm -hmm. this idea of being able to get food stamps, this idea of being able to get TANF, which is temporary aid to needy families, the, the traditional welfare benefits. Mm -hmm. All of those are now, all these, all these areas, policy areas are embedded with this idea of if you are convicted of a crime, you aren't eligible now for these benefits. So what happens to so many people when they come out is they are homeless. Yeah. Um, they are just, they're not able to reunify with families. And that mm -hmm. is a complicated conversation because it's not just um, the families that may have held them down when they were inside, but just the idea of if you've done 20 or 25 years, your parents may have died while you were inside. Mm -hmm. Your siblings have scattered. Yeah. Um, they've moved. They may have been married. They may get married. They may have kids of their own to take care of. There's new family members you've never met. Mm -hmm. And so the idea of this person just sort of parachuting in and okay. having nothing. Right. And when I say nothing, people leave prison and it's the standards are different, but they yeah. may leave with two sets of clothing, prison made clothing. Yep. Um, 50, 70, a few dollars. If they're lucky. A, if they're lucky and a bus ticket. Yeah. Yeah. Good luck. Go yeah. see your parole. Make sure you meet your parole officer in 48 hours. And that's probably the large majority of people who are getting out of prison yes the minority of them have like stable family supports that have resources to help them get on their feet once they get right out. so the the and i and i use this word privilege in a very very specific kind of way mm -hmm. but those individuals that are incarcerated that have family on the outside that have resources i'm talking hard cash yeah not just I can give you a plate of food. I can feed you. I have a couch you can sleep on. I'm talking about hard cash yeah. because individuals need a full wardrobe. I witnessed in New Jersey people being released from prison 10, 12, 15 years mm -hmm. in the dead of winter, think mm -hmm. February, no coat, mm -hmm. no appropriate shoes, mm -hmm. no hat, no gloves and just sort of like, here's a gray sweatshirt. Good luck. Yeah. 
Yeah. So who um, say that person's not going to throw a brick to try to get a coat, try to get some pants, you know? Right, right. Um, and and have no. Um, and this is this is more about those that have served longer periods of time that they may not understand technology either. Yeah, that is a big thing right there. It's because prisons Huge. are like time capsules. Yes. So people may be familiar with, of course, the internet, with cell phones, with, mm -hmm. you know, having an email. Mm -hmm. But knowing those things exist and then coming out and not having spent a lot of time on a computer that is not restricted mm -hmm. by the DOC mm -hmm. and being able to navigate that. So going back to voting, yeah. you need an ID, a picture ID to vote. Yeah. You also then need other documentation to prove who you are. Mm -hmm. And getting those documents costs money. Yeah. You must be able to have a mailing address if mm -hmm. the Social Security Administration is going to mail you an application to get your Social Security card, a, mm -hmm. a new Social Security card. If you don't have a mailing address, you can do it online. But do you understand how to navigate websites and download mm -hmm. a PDF and enter the things into a PDF? Save it. Mm. Print a hard copy and then mail it. Like, that's not that we take for granted those of us who are here in yes. the free society who may have never been incarcerated yes yeah. totally so it's it's that whole we've got these big policies but i always like to bring it down to that lived experience mm -hmm. it's what are people experiencing when they exit and then layer on the policies that make that re-entry so much harder and so um, that yeah. right there causes people to be forever trapped almost in this marginalized sub-society of citizens who yes. find it almost impossible to, I guess, fully participate in social activities. Yes. You know, in civil life, you know. Right. So you think you sort of think about um, and this is how I explain it to to students, but also people that are unfamiliar with the um trauma of prison so mm -hmm. there's trauma prior to prison mm -hmm. the trauma of prison the ptsd that mm -hmm. people experience when they come home mm -hmm. and then restarting life because it's not pick right it's not picking up where you left off you have to restart absolutely from zero so i always yes so i always explain it using maslow's hierarchy of needs mm. and that bottom part of maslow's hierarchy of needs is clothing shelter, food, and water. Mm -hmm. And if you don't have those basics, you can't even think about other things. That's right. Like voting would be a higher order yeah. of, of experiences when you're, when you need to just figure out where am I sleeping tonight? Absolutely. I need to carry all my possessions around. And unfortunately the, the, image that comes to a lot of people's minds of, of homeless people is there's a black garbage bag yeah because you can't afford to go buy a suitcase or right. you can't afford to go buy some other more durable bag but your hope you carry around all your worldly possessions in this black garbage bag the black garbage bag yeah, yeah the bag person right in 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 clothing that is not appropriate for the weather yeah 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 and most people not all but most people spend an inordinate amount of time looking for housing a place to sleep 
And that is so important. Yes. As you illustrated, having an address so that you can have documents sent, so that you can verify that I belong in this place. Right. Or a safe place to leave your things. And we all need safety. Right. We all want Just the, the safety of a of your person, a safety of a place. Yeah. Um, of food. Food. Yeah. Running clean water. Yeah. Yeah. All these things we take for granted, those of us who are working, who have never, again, been impacted by the criminal legal system. Right. Yeah. Right. So you start thinking. So you layer on those lived experiences of just getting out and... Yeah. And then um, housing is housing is a huge challenge. Always. And then, a, yeah. And another and, and part of that is if you are coming out of prison and your family is not wealthy, mm-hmm. they may not have a spare bedroom mm-hmm. or they might live in public housing. Mm-hmm. And, and and not just the public housing of, of the actual buildings, but they may get Section 8. Right. And part of the policy says that you're eligible. This is the policy, and then we'll talk about the implementation. The policy says after three years, if you've had no other interactions with the legal system, you're eligible to live in Section 8. You're eligible for Section 8 vouchers to go and find housing. Mm-hmm. That is the policy, that's the federal policy. It implemented at the local level is you have public housing authorities, administrators that say, oh, you've got a conviction, you're not eligible. Just a blanket exclusion. Yeah. You can't get this. Yeah. Um, and that means Mostly, again, not universal, but men tend to go to homeless shelters or just sleep on the streets or sleep in train stations or the bus station or somewhere out of the pure elements. Yeah. Women will choose to stay in in relationships that are not healthy, either violent relationships or just unhealthy relationships. So that they can have a place to uh, sleep and eat. But yet their wellness is not secure. Exactly. And so Um, this creates a whole bunch of different, just the penitentiary and being exposed to it creates a a, a plethora of unhealthy living circumstances for people. And uh, to use your term earlier, it's complex. It becomes very complex. It's not just a person who comes out of prison can pick themselves up from the proverbial bootstraps and get it going again. Right. And so many, um, and this is more the the 19, language from the 1990s that is slowly being transformed through academics, through activists, through people that actually care about the lived experience. Mm-hmm. But a lot of people in the 1990s were like, well, once you leave prison, just do these five things and you'll be fine. Right. <laughs> <laughs> like, go get a job, go get housing, know. go be free, live your life, don't get arrested. Yeah, they didn't know. They didn't know, but now we know better. We as they, we, as they say in the South, God bless your soul. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so now we know better. We know that individuals are going back to marginalized communities without a lot of hard resources. Yeah. We know people are homeless. Yeah. Like the, the Department of Corrections across the country, federal and state, local jails, assume, they assume 
that ask people will me. go back to family. Ask you me. Yes. You know, when we assume. Yes. <laughs> they just, they make that assumption. Mm -hmm. But we know that that is not happening. Yeah. The, if they the, do go back to families, again, the families oftentimes don't have the means to help support them. They're still struggling to get themselves right. Right. Or to stay exactly. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And so I'm always I and I I hate using the word lucky. Mm -hmm. But there tends to be for those that are successful reentering, there mm -hmm. tends to be a few things that are common. Mm -hmm. They have strong family support yeah. throughout their incarceration, no matter how long the incarceration is, but they have strong family support while they're inside. Yeah. And that family has is still holding them down when they come out. Mm -hmm. And that family does not force the individual to like, you got to go out and get a job. You got to start making money. The family gives them the time to adjust to society, which again, requires resources and patience and therapy and a lot of things. So the, so the individuals that do well have family. Mm -hmm. The other individuals that do well, random luck mm. plus their own attitude perseverance For their you. own sort of um the the their ability to like i'm not going back mm -hmm. which means that i'm going to do whatever i need to do not to go back that's that but perseverance that, that yes fortitude. yes so it, it comes from inside yeah plus a little luck yeah despite whatever impediments are in front of them Yes, they run you into a counselor or a mentor yeah. or or meet someone that believes in them wholeheartedly and and helps them navigate. And that's just what you're saying now is something that I was going to interject, which was, you know, that ability to to uh, establish and sustain um, viable relationships. Just what you're pointing right. out. Yes. Those relationships that can help the person get to the next level, you know. And that's not like let's let's just back up a little bit viable relationships are not even given for those that aren't in the criminal legal system absolutely <laughs> people get divorced no oh, one okay. is in, involved they can't sustain a relationship parent children parent child relationships break for multiple reasons yeah so then you have people and then you layer on the trauma of the criminal justice system criminal legal system yeah. you layer on that trauma and then you layer on the, the, the family's trauma of their loved one being incarcerated. Mm -hmm. And then their loved one comes home. And what does that relationship look like? Mm -hmm. And that is hard for people. Um, and there's some great scholars out there talking about like angry children. Mm -hmm. Like, mom, dad, you were gone. I yeah. grew up. You remember me when I was eight. I'm mm -hmm. 25 now. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, Right. And so those relationships are hard. That's my own personal story. You know, I went to prison and my child was, what, maybe a year old. I came out, she was going on nine. Now she's 35. She's been angry at me the whole time. So mm -hmm. the relationship is non-existent. So, man, right. you hit the nail on the head. And that is real. That is real as real can get. Yes. And... And there's not a concerted effort to deal with the family relationships, family reunification, yeah. 
because of all the other stuff. Yeah. Lack mm -hmm. of housing, lack of clothing, the immediate needs take mm -hmm. so much energy resources to to meet that sometimes you don't have time to deal with the family conflicts or relationships or the anger. Yeah. That a lot of people leave unaddressed. The anger of the the loved ones that were outside and the and the anger of the individuals that are coming out. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of anger, a lot of need for therapy, a lot of need for yes. healing. Healing, you know? yes. And so as you talk about those things, Dr. Middlemass, what are some things you think that um, systems or families or the individuals themselves returning to the community can do um, while incarcerated or post-incarcerated to have, uh, say, successful uh, post-incarceration transitions or re-entry experiences? Yeah, so there's not one thing. Mm -hmm. Of course, there's we've we've talked about multiple things, but there's not one thing. Um, I think that it has to be layered and the whatever people are doing inside needs to be coordinated with the outside. Mm. So what's going on inside? Mm -hmm. We don't have a lot of psychologists, therapists, counseling mm -hmm. inside prison. Right. Um, from what I know, there are sort of groups and there's self-help groups and mm -hmm. they're sometimes directed by a licensed therapist or, or a counselor. But oftentimes it's just people learning how to talk about their lived experiences there. And that's part of helping. Right. So talking about someone's experiences and getting deep into why someone did whatever they did mm -hmm. and then having a professional help them navigate those feelings. Yeah. But then you need the same thing going on outside with the family. Continuum of care. Yes. A bridge. Yes. Mm. And so there is then when family visit, if they're able to visit, because that's a whole nother conversation about resources and time and access and where's your loved one incarcerated versus where do you live? Right, because oftentimes prisons are located so far away from where people are arrested and charged and tried and all that other stuff. Yes, yes. Um, in, so in Louisiana, not Louisiana, in, in Illinois, if you're arrested in Chicago, it's you're, you go downstate. Yeah. In New York, if you're arrested in New York, you go upstate. Yeah. <laughs> like literally, pri right? Prisons are not geographically located. Yeah. Close to people. Yeah, and I think that has something to do with the history of prisons. You know, before prisons, there was just you know exile of wrongdoers in the community, yes. so they were sent far away. Yes. And so I think that's at the core of it. In well, England sent their criminals to Australia. Right. <laughs> like literally and those yeah. british mindset came to the united states with the founding fathers and the sort of original people that created the constitution absolutely absolutely um, and core. so we we do that now prisons are not located on major bus lines mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um yeah. they're removed time. right yeah, totally removed so yeah. one of the last things I want to ask you yes. maybe before we run out of time is um, if you can talk a little bit about um, your latest book, um, Convicted and Condemned. Thank you. So I, um, in my book, Convicted and Condemned, The Politics and Policies of Prisoner Reentry, 
I literally work, sorry, not work, volunteer at a nonprofit organization. It was in Newark, New Jersey. And I interacted with men and women coming home from state and federal prisons. And I got to know them. Um, I wasn't in the nonprofit organization for a couple of days and then I left. I was there for like 29 months, mm. two or three times a week, getting to know people, um, giving them space to learn how to trust me. Mm. I am a suburban girl. I have a PhD. People that looked at me were like, yeah, she's got to be with parole and probation. I bet she's trying to set us up. What is this? So I just sort of hung out and been like, yeah, ask me questions. Yeah. Um, right. Check me. Ask me why I'm doing this. Yeah. And so I once I that took like six or seven months before people trusted me to actually sit down for an interview. And I started asking them about their experiences. Like, what does it mean to reenter? And so many men, women, didn't matter their age, didn't matter their crime, said, no one's asked me that. I've been out now for X number of months, X number of years. No one has asked me about my experiences. Like, why are you doing this? And I'm like, because I want to show how, uh, how badly the policies and how they are actually hurting your reentry efforts. Mm-hmm. So talking about lived experiences, talking about what happened when they come came home, talking about the challenges of getting ID and whether appropriate clothes and family reunification and and diet mm. like people with with. So in prison, if you have a bad if you have a toothache, they just pull the tooth. Yeah, right. And that causes the other teeth to misalign. It causes pain. So people can't actually chew like vegetables. Yeah. So they have to really just have soft diet, which means then multiple other problems for their health. Yeah. yeah. Learned about all that. And all that health is attached to our, our dental, our oral hygiene. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And so learned about those those sort of the the Maslow's hierarchy of needs, the lived experience, what's going on with your body, with your mind, with your spirit, with your family in the community. Mm-hmm. And then I layered on those. So then I I took those stories and I layered on public policy. So I looked at housing, I looked at employment, and I looked at education. Mm. And there was this disconnect with what individuals were learning inside prison and then what jobs they could get outside. So prisons tend to, not tend to, they do use prison labor to run the prison. Everything from food, food prep, HVAC, lawn maintenance, painting, cleaning, medical, that is done by prisoners. Mm -hmm. But when individuals, so they're trained to do work experience. They have work experience. They they know how to fix HVACs. They know how to do plumbing. They know how to do electrical work. They they manage the prison infrastructure. Mm But what happens is when they come out, that work experience does not translate because of employment laws that say, oh, you've got a felony conviction. You can't get your HVAC license. Yeah. You can't do landscaping. Yeah. Yeah. You can't do certain things. So I learned about the disconnect between the policies and then the lived experience and the work experience Mm -hmm. inside prison. Mm -hmm. Same thing with education. 
Like the whole idea of like, well, I can go get a degree, but is someone going to hire me because of the background, the criminal background check when I go apply for a job? Yeah, it's always a challenge. Always a challenge. So the book weaves in together these stories of individuals Mm -hmm. that they shared with me. I also make sure I do a good broad history of race related to the criminal legal system in the United States. Um, I talk about the politics of policies and why certain policies and are formulated around the politics and then basically show that these, these policies are set up people for failure. Yeah. Yeah. That's dope. It's heavy too. It's heavy. Yeah. So if people wanted to get a copy of your book, where can they find it? Right. So the book is published by New York University Press. So you can go to NYU Press. I believe it's $30 for a softcover book. Um, And I believe Amazon also still carries it. Okay. Dope. And how about if people wanted to find out about other projects that you worked on? How can they, I guess follow you or read you or find your work? So I'm on faculty at Howard University. And so I have uh, my email addresses there. I've got a bio of the work that I have done and that I'm currently doing. And I'm at K Middle Mass on Twitter. Awesome. Awesome. And so as we get ready to wrap this up, uh, Dr. Sister Keisha Middle Mass, uh, the giant. I really enjoy <laughs> Thank you. you. You yes. make me blush. <laughs> oh, wow. Well, I mean, I'm really just, I'm just so moved by your work and um, just moved by you as an individual, uh, you know, just meeting you a couple of weeks back and yep, just feeling like you're my sister, somebody I needed to know and have known, but didn't know if that makes any sense. Makes perfect sense. Makes perfect sense. Yes, yeah. indeed. Um, so in closing, is there any last like pearls of wisdom or food for thought that you would drop on someone who's coping with reentry or helping someone returning to society? Right. I think the, for those that are, that are returning and for those that are helping those that are returning, patience. Hmm. I know it's it's a word we throw out there, but hmm. literally patience, patience for the person coming home, patience for the person that is helping those that are coming home. Hmm. Um, that can go a long way. Hmm. But also for those that are on the outside, welcoming those that are coming home and re-entering hmm. is, is ask an individual coming home, what do they need? Hmm. And be, and why I say ask them what do they need is because the first time you ask them, they may not know. They literally may be overwhelmed and like, ah, I don't know. So then you have to sort of take the initiative. If it's cold outside, get weather appropriate clothing. Mm-hmm. Um, but bring the clothing to them because going to a Target, going to a big store, could literally be overload of noises, of colors, of sounds. Um, so ask them, what do you need? Dig it. What do you need? What do you need? Awesome. Awesome. Patience and asking, what do you need? 
Yo, yeah. and so with that, I'm going to say thank you for your time, Dr. Keisha, and um, we're going to call it a wrap. Thank you so much for having me. Great conversation. Lovely. And I'll be in touch soon. Thank you. Take care. Right. Peace. If you're someone you know would like to share your story on the Prison to Promise podcast, hit me up with a quick email at drcraigwaleed at gmail.com. That's D-R-C-R-A-I-G-W-A-L-E-E-D at gmail.com. Or you can find me on LinkedIn and Instagram under Dr. Craig Waleed. You can also hit me up on Twitter at Waleed Craig. I look forward to hearing from you. Peace.